full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. <coughs> Johnny left New York with $10 in his pocket and the girl of his dreams. He said somehow, someway, it's gotta get better than this. Sherry packed her bags, left a note for her roommate, she was just 25. There were tears in her eyes when she kissed those good bagels goodbye. Young house loves here tonight. Talking DIY. That's right. John and Sherry Petersick, best-selling authors, do-it-yourself, internet celebrities, accidental millennial badasses, for our inaugural full disclosure from Richmond's historic Hippodrome Theater. So uh, please tell us about the South Side of Richmond. <laughs> well, talk about it like it's a place no one goes. We love the South Side. Uh, I want to know how you guys got here. When did you first meet? When did it? When did you, you have that kind of twinkle in your eyes that this was going to work <laughs> out? You, like me and my wife, we start off as a New York couple. So yes. take us back to that uh, moment where you had that REO Speedwagon moment in your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> well. We met in New York City working in advertising and we actually made a baby commercial together. So we thought it was funny when we were like actually having a baby. We're like, having a baby does change everything. It was a Johnson's commercial. And um, we were secretly, covertly dating for a while and then we decided to move to somewhere not New York. <laughs> and we were like, where should we go? This was 2004 that we met. So you were secret lovers. Well, I mean, if you want to put it that way. I should use that other 80s song, <laughs> Secret Lover. I do understand that at the, at, you worked at a company together and you kept this yeah, it was under wraps. under wraps. Yeah. What did you do, exchange clients? This is full disclosure. So. This was in like the AOL Instant Messenger days, so there's a lot of uh, silent, what do you even call that? Messaging, yeah. I guess. We, we, did, we, we worked on different floors. We'd be like inter-messaging each other. And where was, your first, where was your first date? Every Thursday we went out in advertising. We called it Something Something Thursdays, and everyone went. And then afterwards we just hung out. Just hung out. There was no, you know, there's a what's up with us moment, woo woo, or the RDT. What is the nature of this show? <laughs> we like to break you down initially before we get into the business elements of it. Like, apparently my song didn't blindside you enough. You just I love laughed I've never on stage. My song. You were supposed to look I a little I loved threatened. it. So, yeah, tell me, people. Um, I, I want, okay, there was this inflection point. Because we're in Manhattan also. I met my wife in 2001. We got priced out of Manhattan. We were building a family. We fell in love with Richmond. Why Richmond? This is why I reached out to you initially, because you're a Richmond family, but you're also nationally facing. Well, the decision, when we decided we wanted to get out of the sort of rat race of New York, if you will, uh, I grew up in Northern Virginia, just outside of DC. And so I was sort of like, let's go back there, because that's what I knew. Um, but then when we looked at it, just because of the you know, cost of living and the traffic, and also we were still continuing in advertising, the creative industry uh, was not uh, there like we were looking for. So my sister had happened to live in Richmond, so we said, hey, let's check that out. And so we came down here, and we're just enamored by uh, the real estate costs. Yeah, no the traffic, cheap houses, Martin Agency. It was like everything we needed. <laughs> 
So we were sold. But there was no elopage or anything. I thought there was a much well, more interesting story. To well, this. so we didn't tell anyone that we were dating. But then at work, we told everyone we were leaving around the same time because we had to give two weeks notice. And so they'd be like, where are you moving? And we're not liars. We just omit information. But I wasn't going to omit where I was moving when someone asked me. So I'd be like, Virginia. And and like, so oh, that's funny like, that, that oh, John and account yeah. management have moved to Virginia. And we were like, isn't that funny? He might, we might share a U-Haul. Isn't that cool? I'm like, not lying. We were sharing a U-Haul. Actually, we moved in a minivan, but same idea. You moved in a minivan. We did. Yeah. One minivan. We sold all of our stuff. furniture and came down with like a mattress and a suitcase. That shows you how I had a lot of shoes and nothing else. <laughs> nothing else. Did you look at each other across the George Washington Bridge or something? Like, Babes, this is it? We were in his parents' car. Uh, <laughs> they were driving. Yeah. But I do remember stopping at a rest stop in the New Jersey Turnpike and being like, here we go, this is life. <laughs> so tell me, uh, this timestamp it for me. This was 2000 and? This was 2006. Yeah. February 2006. And then we wrote to everyone in our office, because we're, fr- we're all like a big social circle. But you didn't have any jobs down here to speak. You just no, we didn't. Yeah, because parents think you were crazy to do that? They did. Yeah, um, yeah, they did. We. When we knew we wanted to move around Christmas of 2005, we started looking for jobs. But you know, we had found that people don't necessarily take your intent to move and get a new job in a new city seriously. They're like, call us when you live in Richmond. <laughs> we're like, we'll see. To move to Richmond, we're trying to get a job. And it was like a, you needed one, but you didn't have one. And you kept going in a circle trying to catch your tail. And then we were like, you know what? Let's just do it. And I'm more of the like pull the lever kind of person. And John's more of the like, let's just wait another year. <laughs> I was like, I'm not waiting another year. <laughs> so then I, I pushed him. I was like, let's just do it. Yeah, we, we knew that we could survive for a little while without jobs, and we had some leads. So we just kind of went for it. My parents, because it's, again, it's very much against my nature to take a big risk like that. So my parents were sort of like, what is he doing? What has this woman done to him? Oh, yeah, my mom was like, you're moving to Virginia with a guy with no ring on your finger? <laughs> I was like, wow, I have a good feeling about this guy. But in, in all fairness and in full disclosure, you had a good feeling about Eminem, Marshall Mathers. It's true, I really did. So I have questionable taste in men is what that shows you. You can admit what, what, what hey. the situation, this is public information now. You were intensely into Eminem. He was, I was your first love I've, before. I think that that is a perfect um, sort of description of me in all my entire life. I'm into things, I'm really into them. I'm not always into the same things. There was a theme, there was a time in my life that I was really obsessed with him. I won this weird big contest on MTV and I got to interview him on a show and they flew me to Detroit and we met and we took all these pictures and got in the newspaper and they said it on the morning announcements at my school, which practically made me famous. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was kind of, I like him still, but I'm not, I wouldn't fly to Detroit for him, if you know what I mean. But then in Manhattan, your taste developed and and, and John's kind of... Right. Bearded man look works for you. Yeah, it does. He didn't have the beard. Certainly not my rapping. Yeah, no, it's not his rapping. We did a rap as a joke, and we had to auto-tune John, if that tells you anything. I want to get at that conversation, kind of the leap of faith. We we do this with a lot of executives we have on the program, and small business people alike. At some point where you're leaving something that's somewhat stable and somewhat knowable, in, in Manhattan with us, we knew the, you know, the, the agency path, uh, path, for example, you could do this, you get poached by another agency, maybe a Fortune 500 company brings you in. Where was that conversation, the kind of epiphany moment where you, where you locked yeah. gazes into each other's <laughs> eyes and you're like, you know what, we're smart from a cost perspective, we can mitigate our risk, but you know, we can make it work it out somehow. And, and outside of kind of puppy love boundaries. I think it was, um, I'll give Sherry the credit here, I think it was really clear to her that we weren't happy 
uh, particularly me, because I wasn't uh, enjoying my job. I had actually, I had not intended to move to New York in the first place after going to school here. What took you to New York? To, what took me there? Uh, job Work. Offer. Yeah, it was the only place I could get a job offer. So and I loved New York, and I loved my job, and I was getting advances, and the boss really liked me, and John was awesome at his job and worked so much harder than me and longer hours and, you know, just wasn't feeling as appreciated and didn't feel as fulfilled by it, and I loved this man, so I thought, if you don't love every day and you hate everything, I like it, but I'm like a happy puppy. I'll go anywhere and be happy, so I'll just follow you to Virginia. <laughs> How old were you, John, when you decided that you need to make a career change, a career risk, or at least... I think we were 23. Yeah, we were young. I mean, we, I was uh, 18 months into my first job out of college that we made this decision. And just for the younger <laughs> listeners out there, what kind, what kind of job did that entail? What was your daily thing like? I mean, you're a creative person. You like to, to see things change. Do you like, it turns out you have a big DIY right. situation. <laughs> I mean, it was a, uh, my first job title was staff assistant. That gives you an idea <laughs> of sort of the value I added <laughs> to the team. So it was a lot of scheduling meetings and clearing calendars. But was that preparing. sold to you, I guess, out of college with a promise of something bigger, implicitly? Yeah, well, at least in the advertising track, you sort of see like, okay, I do this, and then I get, you know, assistant account executive and account executive, and you sort of see that there's a path that you follow, and you, um, you think that is going to be a more exciting um, sequence, I guess, than it, it was for me, at least. And I think some of it was saying like, well, would you be happy if you had, you know, our friend's job or... Or your boss's, like, yeah, would like, I be happy in my boss's job? And right. I, We'd be like, do you want to be Meredith? <laughs> you know, like we'd talk about people above us. And I was like, I really liked my job and it was very exciting for me. And I think it's, I was on the creative side and he was on the account side. And um, it's funny, it was like... Um, Capulets and the Montagues, like the creatives were on this floor and the like, you know, buttoned up guys who had to like, he had to wear dress pants, I got to wear jeans. Like we were in different worlds just a floor away from each other. And I think he saw, he's more creative than they were giving him to feel fulfilled. And I was like getting to do all this fun stuff. And I was just like, I want you to get to do the fun stuff with me. So it's cool that sure. now we do the fun stuff together. Now, now that you've gone through this kind of like this almost like 15 year journey together, you're mindful in the, of how you use the internet and social media so uh, resourcefully, how Google and uh, online advertising blew up long held notions about advertising spend or the agency model and things like this. And it's like, so things that you're, you're sold uh, when you're undergraduates, potentially a career track are suddenly a lot less relevant very quickly. Um, how did that factor into your thinking? Like, gosh, we look around Manhattan. I, I guess that must have been the area. You know, Gawker was just making a start mm -hmm. at it. it. Was Daily Candy? Yeah. Some of these, some Brent of these things in. that had no startup costs, that were lifestyle brands that were coming up online, were getting bought out by AOL and other blogs for lots of money. Mm -hmm. So, in the back of your mind, were you thinking, kind of, okay, uh, there no. was a disruption <laughs> going on? I mean, I, I don't think we were applying it to ourselves. Because when we started the website, we didn't, nobody that we knew or knew of made any money, not even like side money. It was before we really understood about Google Ads and we didn't know any of that stuff. And we were like, huh, it is interesting that what we used to call guerrilla marketing, do you know that term? Mm -hmm. So in advertising, we were in college, we'd do a portfolio and we have ads, you know, print ads and TV and all that stuff. But we'd always include like a guerrilla campaign in our portfolio. And that was like people who did like cool stickers or like stuff on the side of a building or like, um, you know, a man holding a sandwich board. It was like interactive <laughs> and it really was like guerrilla. Like you, it was on the street, one person doing something or, or, you know, and then I think it really turned into flash mobs. <laughs> That's my theory anyway, guerrilla advertising. Segwayed into flash mobs. 
mobs. But anyway, the um, now it's not called gorilla. It's just people do stuff like that all the time. It's just a part of the advertising world that there is a public stunt or a you know event that looks not choreographed but is choreographed. So I think we knew that advertising was changing. We did not have any inkling that we would somehow be a part of this new thing that was coming. Did you have an intention of coming here and getting an ad agency job? I mean, you yeah. wanted a oh, that's what agency I did. job? Yeah. That's what it, well, see, we didn't want to work at Martin. Isn't that weird? We liked that the Martin agency was in Richmond because it made Richmond sort of like, it put Richmond on the map as an ad area for us. But we were moving from New York City and doing all this like long hours. And we what we heard from Martin at the time, people we knew there, was it's still long hours. And a lot of time, you're flying to New York to mix or to you know, do stuff in New York, so it might have been even longer hours, and we were like, we're not going to move from New York to fly back to New York and do all that. Well, if, uh, the decision for us was all about lifestyle and balance. It wasn't about career. The career was a secondary thought in terms of the choices we were making, so it was, um, like Sherry said, like why leave one rat race to find ourselves in another one? Just it's the same reason we didn't want to move to the fan, because we loved New York City, but we were like, moving from New York City to the fan is just like another type of city. And we were afraid that it would be the same thing. I think we're, when we're taking a risk, we don't want to take the risk and it be not worth it. So we try to make take maybe an even bigger risk and do something super unusual or That's why you're slumming it on my show tonight. <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty risky. That's not true. You sang a song about us. Oh, uh, yeah. And you crossed the bridge for me. We did. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I do harp on this, especially with younger people. Like, you guys look like enfants terribles, millennials. <laughs> and I want to get at that mindset because we're all told that... Um, you have to pay your dues. I remember intensely hating my first job in the brokerage industry and the disillusionment, the, um, <clears throat> the idealism I brought into college, you know, changing the world, go help uh, Al Gore reverse global warming and all this <laughs> stuff that I took into the year 2000, which you know, Goldman Sachs promptly slapped out of me, get the spreadsheets done, right? Um, <laughs> that you get, especially from my parents and uh, another generation that kind of went through economic hardship and withdrawal, they're like, you, you have to pay your dues. There were times where we have to worry about getting drafted. This just did. But now you talk to your contemporaries or the people who interface with you, and they're like, no, forget it. Um, I'm questioning everything. I'm questioning the value of college education. I'm questioning the value of the set two-year track programs at big firms. Mm -hmm. Looking back at it, how did that factor in your thinking? I think for... I think I, in our relationship, I was probably the person who looked at that set track and assumed that was what I had to follow, and Sherry was probably the disruptor to say that it doesn't have to be that way. Um, actually, it's funny you say that, because I remember when I was in my first year at my ad agency, um, the, a group of classmates from uh, UVA, where I went to school, who were in their fourth year, came up there to tour that agency because they were interested in doing it, and I was supposed to give a presentation to them about what it's like to work there. And basically, the theme of my presentation was, you don't need what you're learning in school because all you need to know is like where the copier is and what the <laughs> dynamics are between the different uh, departments and like that's the stuff you learn your first year of work. It's not oh can I do a really interesting presentation because you're not doing the interesting presentations. Um, so I think uh, I was probably in the that's a uh, marker of my disillusionment for what I expected to do coming into work and what I was actually doing and probably why I was so unhappy in the job and the insane hours that I was working. And so I think we sort of said there has to be something better than this that feels like even if I'm not producing the most fabulous work, that at least my life outside of it is, uh, is 
fulfilling me and balanced. Yeah, that's what it felt like to us. It was like trading, because I worked on the Got Milk campaign with celebrities, so I would shoot with Annie Leibovitz and like meet all these celebrities, and it was like very, very glamorous. And I remember being like, I'm giving all of this up. I can't like move to Richmond and then come back and do this. Yeah, but this, this is, is a hunk it. of man. I mean, don't, it is. Don't it is. It is. You're seeing. You see this beard? Yeah. I mean, not everyone. You can, can be have the this brawny beard. man. Have you seen that? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody take a picture on Instagram. I don't know. I'm not even on Instagram. <laughs> But yeah, so interestingly enough, I could say, you know, by full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're here with the Petersicks, John and Sherry Petersick. Young House Love, best-selling authors, uh, do-it-yourselfers extraordinaire, voices for millennial home improvement people, enfant terribles. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I, I just think like you saying are. it. It sounds good. Enfant terribles, young Turks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, your generation, um, and excuse me, everyone, if this is a bit jargony, has been known to Netflix and chill. Um, in your time, you were known to HGTV and chill. It's true. What was it about HGTV? <laughs> you said it in your You can just leave that thing on for like 10 hours. It Why? can take you through the day. It just got dumber and dumber for us. I mean, you know, Property Brothers, this, that, that. All they do is they take, you know, Property Brothers, Kitchen Cousins, Basement Buddies. I mean, all <laughs> That's you know, right. They should do that. That's they should do that. Chill. So, but, but you said that it helped, it helped kind of inspire and grease well, we're I think we were, Richmond. yeah, we were watching HGTV even in New York. I don't know why, <laughs> because we were in an apartment that you couldn't do anything to. It was this small. Well, I think, and that's sort of what it was. It was like we saw people making over spaces, and none of us really had that in our background. Like we don't come from um, handy. You, could, you look like you can chop some serious wood. Oh I'm my surprised gosh. you're saying. <laughs> you should see this man build. He's like a master carpenter. Um, Where did that come from? So that's not from a YouTube. family. Completely learned. Yeah, YouTube, Googling, Googling. other bloggers. Yeah, it was a... reading the box, putting it down, reading the box. Yeah, the again. instructions. Yeah, <laughs> you're making my wife mad because we hire people to put the IKEA stuff together. <laughs> See, and if anything ever goes south in our career, we know that we can assemble IKEA furniture. Very so good. we're going to be okay. Well, I, I, so that that first time you come in here on I-95, 64. You crossed the dreaded bridge to the south side. Yeah, we had a little have? rental we we lived in, and our, we were each. We had a mattress like... in the back of an El Camino, is what we had. Yeah. <laughs> and all the love love kept you together. It was really like Captain and Tennille. It was. <laughs> it was good. I mean. That we was were... a shout out to the baby boomers out there. We had like this whoop in the background. Um, we. It we're was cheaper inclusive. rent. It was cheaper rent. Right. We were interviewing, so we felt like confident that this would be okay and within three weeks i had work john had a job and he proposed to me so it felt like within a month of living here it was all happening and within three months of living here we bought our first house so it truly felt like we got a dog we just his family was like every time you called me i thought something new was big was happening because we'd call and be like we're engaged we bought a house we got a dog then we did every time the phone rang for like two years they were like baby baby we're like just relax <laughs> but anyway it was like an exciting sort of like, you get to choose what your life is, and we picked up and moved, and it became this cool you thing. You parked a van down by the river with a mattress <laughs> yeah. and sent out resumes and promptly got jobs at ad agencies and PR firms. How did this work? Because I understand this is a different economy. It's a different time. Yeah. This is before the financial crisis. It is, yeah. But uh, a lot of people would imagine you need a hell of a lot more premeditation to do what you guys did. Did you live on ramen noodles? Were you, were you we're, living we're off of thrifty. savings? 
We had good resumes. You know, we were coming from New York. In fact, one place interviewed both of us and said, no, you will not be fulfilled because this job is, can never compare to what you had. And that was annoying because I was I like, said, no. let me make that decision. <laughs> <laughs> Just give us a paycheck, please. We'll be fine. <laughs> but then, you know, it, it was fine because we ended up at the right places. And now we don't look back and wish that they hired us. But I think it seems reckless, but we had more ducks in a row than we realized because we're both savers, so we had a cushion in the bank and we were actually saving money by moving to Richmond. Seize on that point for a minute because that's, that's great. You bought yourselves some sort of freedom, some sort of self-determination. Yes. Even in your early 20s, where I remember I was mm-hmm. there, there was a lot of pressure. You know, they'd call, uh, you'd go empty out your ATM and go partying with people and spend a lot on table service and, you know, I don't know. Uh, but you guys avoided those siren calls and just got lost in each other's eyes. We were like, dollar pizza, we're good. You lived in Manhattan? Yeah, I lived yeah. in Chelsea. I lived in um, the village. But they were tiny. I mean, tiny. The door would hit the bed. Tiny. But I think we both grew up in families that were valued saving and thriftiness. And so we both, and we also came from families that encouraged work. Yeah, we, that age. is so we one thing had... we have in common. We both worked like the minute you were allowed to work, we had jobs and we worked through college and we we were always working. There wasn't like, oh, you're in school, just relax. You worked back in high school as soon as you got the oh, permit? Yeah. What did you guys do initially? I was always having to do with swimming or lifeguarding or I taught swim lessons and lifeguarding and all that. And you were a male model? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was a paper boy. I delivered I mean, the Washington John Post from fifth grade. Any kid can yeah. work. He worked in fifth grade and I was like, how's that allowed? At five in the morning, you're up. It was very newsies of In it. your conversations together in those initial dates, I mean, did this come up, that the way the, the parents instilled you, that there was something in common? No, but I think we both, um, I think it comes out, I mean, in the dating um, process where you realize that they're not <laughs> spending, buying you lavish gifts. <laughs> that could be a deal killer for some, but we probably realized that we were similar in that regard, that we both squirreled things away. Um, there literally was a conversation where I was like, okay, this is weird, but if we're moving together, we should know this about each other. How much do you have in the bank? And he told me the amount, and I said, I have exactly the same. I mean, it was like within $20. We're just this, it's, it's weird. We're not exactly the same in all aspects, but we're alike enough that we don't argue about the big things. The value stuff, I think our parents raised us kind of the same. So John and Sherry move into this house. Not on the river, I'm just making, I don't even know what goes <laughs> we, on we on the side. That. <laughs> it's like this little ranch, one-story house, 1,200 square feet. Why did you decide on that? What, did, did you, I mean, you were, again, drunken from HGTV. We were. Yes. Thinking oh, the property man. brothers That's actually pretty same. accurate. We were, you know, because they use AutoCAD software. There's a lot you don't yeah. see, I'm told. Right. And as you know now, the sausage oh, is made. Oh, we know, yeah. Well, what happened to us is we, um, uh, because we had recently changed jobs, and she was freelancing, uh, her income would not count for when our, we were getting approved for our loan. So our, we didn't have, we couldn't get as much house that we thought we could afford. So we were like, well, that's money that we could use to renovate something. And when we were looking uh, at houses, we came, we were shown a house that was recently renovated and it was flipped and all that stuff. And we're like, they did a nice job, but why don't we get something that is the before and we can make our own choices. It was like for the same amount of money, we could either put, like say it was 70,000 more I don't remember, but say one was, you know, 200 and one was 270 or something, or one was 100 and one was 170. The, the 100 one, we were like, we could make all the choices that are already in the 170. Like when you buy the 170, you get the tile, you get the new fireplace around, you get the new floors refinished to that color. And it was like those, cho- we were paying for someone else who made those choices, 
we had this moment of revelation where we're like, or you buy the beater and you have the 70 yourself and you allocate it and you choose you the get floor to make color. The but the 70 the turns into 120. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Don't Those numbers are very that, rough, too. Right? I don't even No, I mean, even the property brothers always have five bad news to break that the marble cracked and we have to order right. it from another yeah. mine in Sicily or something. So, no, it takes a very kind of special person to roll up their sleeves and say, you know, you guys must be go-getters that way. I mean, I, you know. Or we're so cheap. Yeah. So your value investors is what you're trying to do. <laughs> That's a very nice way to put it. You see that. something cheap, and because you've now moved on from having one house to having several projects. So walk this forward for me. The financial crisis happens. Then what? 2008, 2009. Well, that was kind of, we started the website in 2007, and we always say it was kind of um, an accidental right place, right time thing, because suddenly two people who were cheap when cheap wasn't a good look, <laughs> it was getting cool to be cheap. Like there were these people who would, I always say, like you used to, back in the day, you'd never be like, oh my gosh, I got this jacket for $2 at Target. You'd be like, someone would say, I like your jacket, and you'd say, thank you. And you'd like hope that they thought it was a name brand. But you know, now that they're started in, in that age, it became kind of cool to save money. And it became, the handmade movement was happening, Etsy was blowing up. There was just like a lot of people who are doing, you know, artisanal handmade things suddenly were cool the wooden bow ties made on Etsy, that all was like blossoming. And we were like, huh, it's kind of funny in hindsight. We didn't notice it at the time, but in hindsight, how perfect we were poised doing these budget projects for other people who maybe wouldn't want to do DIY, but they were forced to because of the economy. So it got us sort of the cheapies that were our, you know, our soul sisters and brothers who like to be cheap were in the, the pool of people watching us, but then it suddenly got us people who just needed new tile and couldn't afford to hire it out, so they wanted to learn too. I think that's because also with house values having gone down around that time, people were having to stay put and make the most of what they had. And people were also having to liquidate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what was that one first project where maybe you instructed yourself on YouTube. Again, the advent of YouTube is around 2006, 2007. Yeah, it was perfect. And the D, D, I mean, it is an amazing thing. I mean, you can look up something as esoteric as, I have this model legacy MP3 player. How do I correct a loose solder on it? Mm -hmm. And then you talk about Khan Academy and all the great things that it can do with respect to education. Was there one project where a light bulb kind of went off? Your head's like, baby, this is my future. <laughs> <laughs> Every single project I thought was John was going to just mic drop and walk out. Because I was like, he's getting very stressed about this. I have to tell him how capable he is. <laughs> what was that first project? Like the aha moment, like this ain't so bad. Well, the, I have it in me to do this. The thing that sticks out to me is a green toilet. <laughs> um, that was in our, our first house in the half bathroom. And before we moved in, I was like, oh, this can't stay. Uh, so I researched, read every article, watched every video I could find about replacing the toilet because it seemed like the most Herculean task that anyone would ever have to do. And like, I had my cousin come into town. We were yeah, there together. Was like, there was like a help, a guy who drove for two hours to be like the support toilet person. <laughs> so that stands out to me as something that we, I learned how to do, we did. It wasn't that bad. Oh my gosh, and he's changed like 100 toilets. He'll be at someone's house and as a party trick, he'll be like, you want me to tighten your wax ring? And he'll. It's not a very good party <laughs> trick. <laughs> He's like done it at his parents' ring. house. He's done it like for That wax ring is a beast on some legacy <laughs> toilets. Have to yeah. pry it off. He's become very, very good at toilets. So there must have been an inflection point circa 2008 because technology is still advancing, but there's distress in the economy. There's your life is proceeding ahead. You're married. You're biscuiting at the time, or you're about to get preggers? What are we? 2008. No, no, no. no. We didn't have a baby till 2011. 10. 10. 2011. 
2010. So um, you're looking at the internet potentially, I see from some of the stuff you've done on the various shows you've been on. Nate Burgess, gosh, if you just go to younghouselove.com slash press and see all the different publications and TV shows that have hosted this wonderfully modest couple from the bizarre south side of Richmond. <laughs> you're like the biggest deal to happen since that, um, since that enormous Kroger in Cloverleaf Mall. <laughs> We are, we are. You are Kroger. bigger than the Kroger. You should be on like a sightseeing tour, <laughs> like you and the power plant. Um, anyway, so, so what? You, did you potentially look at this not as a hobby at some point and say, "Gosh, there's money to be made here"? No. I mean, I mean, when we started it just the website, it's not a thing. Yeah, it's it was, like saying, like, "Oh, you make pipe cleaner animals. You're probably gonna make some money doing that." Like, it's so. It's like saying you like to shine silverware. That's going to be your profession. It's just it's, so random. It was a hobby, and it's like a type of hobby that doesn't feel like it could ever be a job because we did. But why is it a job for a Martha Stewart? Right? Why is it a job for these doyens who established themselves in the age of, of big like, magazines and connections? But she doesn't. She doesn't speak to your generation. Well, I think the the interesting thing about if you can get yourself on the mindset of 2007 is that there was a big separation between sort of personal blogging and social yes. media and traditional media online. We didn't right feel now like it's so that was blurred. A, we weren't like akin to MarthaStewart.com. We were like well, we were we like had, someone's live journal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We were much closer to like people just saying like, oh my gosh, my light bulb went out. Does anyone have a trick? It's 13 feet high and I can't reach it. And there'd be like people on a message board. So we were akin to sort of like a home improvement message board. We called it a DIY diary. What was the tipping point with respect to page views or velocity where you're like, honey, you got to come in here. This thing's out of control. <laughs> I don't know. I don't I think, think there we, was one point because it was such point, a gradual thing. Maybe a few months in, we entered a contest and it was like a Canadian contest. And if you got your friends to vote for you, there was like people's choice. Is that what it was mm -hmm. called? You got $1,000. And I was like, dude. $2, oh, was it $2,000? $2, I was like, dude, we could get all of our like Facebook friends to vote for us. Maybe we could win. And then we applied and we d quickly were stampeded by like real bloggers who had their readers help them because yeah. anyone who this knows, is 2008 you know yeah. if you're a blogger and you put on your website like hey guys go vote for me you'll like immediately have thousands of votes and then we were like friends on facebook please hear my cry and like we were it was not even it was like thousands below everyone else but we won the judge's choice which was nuts i mean we were a few months into this we literally had never even thought about that and that was five thousand dollars it was the big pot and that was when we went to dinner. I was like, baby, we're going to dinner. Where did we go? It was like an Italian restaurant. It was like $20. And, <laughs> and I was like, maybe this blogging thing is, and like, that's how narrow it was that I was like, maybe we can enter more contests. <laughs> because, that was our monetization model, was contests. You, and I was like, hey, let's get the money we make for the blog, let's put it right back into our house. This isn't like Vegas money, it's like paint. But the money you made for the blog, again, this gets to a central concept in the show that we have a lot of times. And actually what you're seeing here tonight is people paying for content, um, which you know gets into a later stage in your career. But it's not like there are people on the other end putting tokens right. in a slot saying, yeah, John, Sherry, give me more. You know, It's like <laughs> you guys are getting subsidized by contests out there, ostensibly by you know, big legacy publishers or Fortune 500 companies that are trying to appeal to your generation. Right. But that's like a it's like a high risk, high reward strategy. It's not it's not a money making No, it, it's it, not a it never felt like it thing. was no. gonna be. 
No, and like we always say, like if you people will write to us and say, like, I want to start a website. What can I do? I want it to be my job. I'm, I have children. I want to be able to provide for them from working from home. And I'm like, that is, I love the goal and it's amazing, but it's really not a get rich quick. Like there are many, many other jobs you could do before you that you'd make way more money than like Starbucks. You'd make more money than blogging for the first few years because nobody sees you. You're just like we have posts with zero comments, zero comments, zero comments, zero comments, and it was a very slow. And it was also sort of that right place, right time thing. So I think around, I don't know. By the time we had Claire, we had over a million hits a month. It was nuts. We were on the cover of a magazine. We were. That was when press was really exploding. And I think. Rewind. By the time you had Claire, there yeah. must have been an inflection point. Yeah. Was there a blog yeah. post? Was it about candor? Was it? Uh, were you particularly resourceful with a social medium channel that you used? What was it about that? Go back to that because you surely remember writing it. I know it must have been a pungent time in your life because your daughter's born. Let's go back to that moment of kind of. Well, I, th I think that there was that moment where we, we won that contest where we said, wow, maybe we're good at this and maybe we should stick with it. Because that was three months in, it was towards the end of our kitchen renovation, which was the project that caused us to start the blog in the first place. And that was wrapping up, which we had intended to stop. Yeah, we were like, point. oh, we'll just stop when the kitchen's done. What are we going to say? <laughs> and then it was a few months after that that we were um, invited to be featured in a magazine. Which magazine? Uh, it was called Do It Yourself Magazine a special interest publication of Better Homes and Gardens. <laughs> um, and so they came and shot, and that was, all of this at this point was just for the experience and the excitement of it. I mean, it was just, it was not about earning money or turning it into a business, because that was never in our realm of possibility for this, for the first part You're of the still year. harvesting salary money and being careful I'm still working full-time, yeah. Yeah, John worked full-time, I worked full freelancing full-time, and, and it was very gradual. It was like, I started taking on fewer clients, I started taking on more, spending more time on the website, and then eventually, he quit his job when Claire was born, and we got, um, I'm just reading that. Nosy. We, um, My engineer thinks you're beautiful. That's what she wants. Uh, you can wait for after the show to tell her. <laughs> anyway, we there were points at which we were like t putting more of the blog on our plates and less of other things on our plates. And then when I was pregnant with Clara, was this big moment where I was like, I'm either gonna have this baby and stay at home with the baby, and the blog is just gonna stagnate and all this stuff we've accomplished will be amazing but it cannot continue when I have a baby we're crazy if we think I can do what I'm already doing plus have a baby that's like a full-time thing and or you could come home and work on the blog with me and he was like there's no way and I was like just do spreadsheets you love spreadsheets <laughs> do a spreadsheet about it and we'll figure out if we can make it work but it was it was Sherry getting pregnant that forced us to face the decision of whether we could actually make this a really legit business for both of us uh, or if it was something that needed to go away because it was earning enough to compensate for her former freelance uh, income almost. Yeah, I took a huge pay cut, but, but I was like, but we're, we're spending less in Richmond. So it felt kind of like... What is the break point? And now these are old numbers. These are eight yeah. or nine years old where it becomes profitable. It's like a hockey stick thing where Good it question. becomes more than a hot... It's probably... Wait, let's tell... This of, is my favorite stat. The first mm -hmm. month we used AdSense the, for the month, not Google, for the Google day. Google AdSense. Yes, Google yeah. AdSense. We Which put pays it, you per click. Yes, it like basically puts ads on your sidebar and much like a magazine makes money for the ads they run, your little sidebar ads pay you a tiny fraction. It's like maybe a dollar for every thousand views. So congratulations, if you have 5,000 people come, you made $5, you know? And so we were like, okay, let's put it on and see what we get. And the 
first month, for the whole month, we made $11. <laughs> we were like, that's a quart of paint. Let's keep going. <laughs> but that was, that was 2000, mid-2008, and it took about a year, 2009, for that Google AdSense money to get about um, enough that she could consider it maybe an income. And right, Sherry where I, I became full time. Segue off my clients, but I wasn't saying never again. I was keeping them right next to me in case the blog just like fell apart. I didn't feel like it was going to be forever. I just felt like just let me play on the blog for like a few months, and then I'll go back to my real job. You know. Full disclosure from the hip. We're talking to John and Sherry Petersick in our first show at the historic Hippodrome Theater in Jackson Ward, RVA. Uh, the Deuce is what they called this uh, storied theater. At one point, it was a church. Um, New Edition and Bobby Brown did play here, too. I didn't mean to mention my name with them, to kind of bring <laughs> them down. But we're here with John and Sherry Petersick of Young House Love. And I think the question on everybody's minds is, you ultimately, and, and the big draw for me, for you, is that you took a passion, sublimated a passion into a business. There had to have been a tipping point. Uh, what with pregnancy, what with Google AdSense and everything, traffic numbers, the enormous amount of destruction happening in advertising proper, in media proper, where you guys kind of closed the door and looked at yourself and said, gosh, this is bigger than we think it is, even with the baby. Was it when somebody approached you? Was it when you got a deal offer? We had like some smallish publishers or agents being like, do you guys ever want to do a book? Let's turn what's on your blog into a book. And we were, we're like, well, people can get it for free on the blog. We don't want to turn that into a book. But we'd write a book, you know, with like original content. And John's sister is amazing and works in New York City at a big publishing house. So we could run people by her and be like, have you heard of this group? And she'd be like, oh, don't, you know, like that's, you should hold out and just like work with someone who kind of knows a little bit more about you know, that genre or whatever. And um, the TV stuff, we were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but I'm pushing you because you're, you're parlaying, you know, $5,000 contest, uh, trade publication, this stuff. At some point, it gets parlayed into something. Well, AdSense started picking up. Our, to what extent? I mean, $11 I mean, turns into what? I mean, we were making a comfortable income enough for John and I both to work full time from home on the website. So we, he gave up his advertising income. I gave up my freelance clients, both of us with total open doors. Like, he still could go back to his agency. I still could pick up with my clients whenever their next so project So it was low came. risk in that Right. Regard. And so we basically, it took us a few years, though, but it was a two-person full-time job, and we did that for four solid years, where a whole family, including two children, lived off the, and I think just again, the website. For us, a lot of the decisions we were making were less about because we had come in with this plan to make a business that was going to be a successful business. For us, it was about how do we support the lifestyle that we wanted, and, and how do we enjoy what we're doing? So we were enjoying the website so much, that's why we were putting time into it. And the fact that it was making money was just sort of icing um, on the whole Because we thing. did the website for free, for fun, as a hobby for many. Like late night. You know, like every night he'd come home from work and we'd trade the laptop back and forth and write our little post. And we did that with no expectation of it ever becoming a job and no income possibility. Like we didn't so, even do the AdSense thing for years later and then he didn't come on full-time for many years after that. So it was a very sort of a decision, slow build. The decision to get it to a place where it could support both of us was, again, not so that we could say, hey, congratulations, we made a, a business that has two employees. It was so that we could have a lifestyle where we're both from home, we could both raise our child together. That was sort of the impetus for all of it. That was the goal. And the fact that it was becoming successful as a business was just sort of the byproduct, I guess. Were you going increasingly upscale, at least Ruth's Chris? <laughs> <laughs> we went to Hawaii. That was big. We like took an airplane ride. <laughs> it was big. We brought our daughter. It's the worst red eye back. I think we're like blacklisted from those flights now. You know, one of the words we absolutely detest on this show is influencer. 
Uh, it gets thrown around a lot on LinkedIn. It's the Forbes Power 30, blah, 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 influencer. At some point, with the advent of Twitter and the statusphere and Facebook and everything else really ramping up into economic and job uncertainty, a lot of people became self-proclaimed influencers. But you really know you're an influencer when companies with marketing budgets come to you and say, we want to hire you. We want you to be spokespeople for something. How did that opportunity open up for you and did you feel ambivalent about it? Because you feel wonderful about interfacing with your readers mm -hmm. and you feel like you have this organic attachment to them. You're feeling tender as new parents and yeah. people are sharing parenthood observations with you. How did you walk that line? It's so funny because I remember the first time that we sort of had a, a brand come to us um, and it was a, it was Home Depot and they had come to several bloggers and they were giving them I think $500 to make over their porches and it was a contest. There's our strategy contest. contest. I was like, we're going to contest. Let's do it, baby. <laughs> we lost. We lost. Spoiler alert. We lost. I remember the feeling of that was like, wow, I can't believe this big company thinks that blogs are legitimate enough to pay attention to. And that was like kind of the victory that it, it felt for us and the other people in the contest. But like, you know, wow. the funny thing is, as we're thinking about it with our advertising hats on, we're like, this is really smart. They're, they're giving us a $500 gift card to Home Depot, the store they run. <laughs> and we're using all these Home Depot products and we're blogging to all of our followers and they have lots of bloggers doing it. How many of us were there? Maybe five, so, yeah, six? six? Maybe. And we had, like, it wasn't one post, which is now when there's something, like, for a brand, you usually hear from someone about it once or twice. This was, like, 50 posts over two months. And we were begging for votes, like, vote for us. You can vote every day. You can go to bhd.com slash whatever and vote again. Have you voted today? And it seems funny now because for anyone who reads blogs, like, the sponsored content is so prevalent now. And... Um, it seems almost assumed that, yeah, brands pay attention to bloggers and vice versa, but it was like such a weird, strange thing. At right. The time. Back then we were like, wow, Home Depot? That's like a real brand, you know? And then someone asked us to be like a certain type of sandpaper spokesman, and we were like, I don't know if that's a good fit. <laughs> like, is that weird? We're going to like endorse your sandpaper because it's better than the other sandpaper? So there were lots of things. So we got a two book deal in 2010. Was it 2010? Yeah. And that did was you hire a literary agent? Did you go yes. fishing for a book So an deal? agent, we did not fish, she came to us, and then we asked John's sister about her, and John's sister was like, lock that in, baby! <laughs> After all these times where we were like, what do you think? She'd be like, mm, I would wait. She was like, that's a great one. They have a, like houses in um, New York and um, Chicago or something, Boston. And she was like, it's real, it's legit, do it, work with them. And it was all because this agent's um, intern read our blog. So we're like forever like heart eyes to the intern. But she has been an amazing agent. We've had two books with her. We still work with her. She's awesome. And that, I think, was when we were like, this is real. Like, we have a book. It has our names on it. It's in Barnes & Noble. You know? It was Barnes like, & Noble. What? And books a million. What? Yeah. So, so I think there were times along the way that we were like, this is so crazy that this can happen to bloggers. Because there it was so many new things. You've had Home not Depot. one, but two best-selling books. Yeah. Yes. Shockingly enough. How does that work? I don't know. People just buy it. It's but awesome. But you just put this stuff together. <laughs> you guys are looking at each other over dinner of, let's say, $40. Ramen. You yeah. her, uh, like ramen at this point. You're eating above the Olive Garden. Nothing wrong with the Olive Garden. We hope to have them on a future show. Uh, but you're thinking at this point, Babes, you know, if you juggle the babe, 
and I do this and we have another baby and this, that, that, maybe we can slop up enough blog stuff and hire a ghostwriter. How does that even work? Was the number so good from this literary agent or publisher like, we got to do this? No. So you don't make money in books when you're a first time author. Like, and if you do a two book deal, this is just a tip for anyone. We are so glad we used our agent and our publisher, but knowing what we knew now, if you are going to have a bestseller, have a one book deal. Because then when you write a second book, they'll give you a nice big advance because you're a New York Times bestseller. But when you sign a two book deal, you get the same advance for the second book that you got for the first book, even though the first book was a bestseller. Did you sell something above your advance though? Was there money to be made over I copies mean, that you there's sold? There's a royalty rate, but you have to, you have to reach the amount it's, it's earn really back hard they, to explain. They spent yeah, everything work. they spend to, to print the pictures and make the books and ship the books. And they hired the photographer for the book. There's a photography budget. There's the person who makes the index who gets money, basically, all and our advance to earn all that money back in book sales. And then you're out of the red. But when you do two books, you have to make all that money twice because they made two books. When all said and done, do you look at yourselves as a content couple, as a do-it-yourself couple, as a you know, just a fun couple. Like, how? Wh wh which bucket do you put yourselves in? One, two, three. Ready? Say it. Weirdos. Yeah, I was gonna say. I was gonna say normal. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but we're normal weirdos, guys. Well, if we were to take content, for example. Yeah. Do you feel like you're getting paid for your content when you put your effort into something? It's now weird. it's one thing for yeah. a sponsor to come in, and this is a big meaning of life question we throw around when we have advertising people on the show, magazine people, media executives, uh, struggling writers, people leaving the industry. It seems like the world lost a way to pay for content. As you guys know, there's a, there's just terabits and terabits of content out there. Mm -hmm. And what's beautiful is about what enabled you is also what's kind of cheapening it for people who used to make money on it. So you have to be especially good and especially resonant to, to earn a buck, much less, you know, a living wage. I mean, I think we, we often describe ourselves as writers. And, yeah. Um, which like maybe is like work, a content provider, but I think- Maybe content is a word for writing, but I think we define ourselves by the action. So to me, if someone said, your readers um, support everything you guys do, and that's so awesome, but they don't have to pay anything, how do you make money? We always say, well, we're kind of like a magazine. Where a magazine has ads, we have sidebar ads, and we also have like side gigs like writing books and you know speaking engagements or whatever else we do. And everyone's like, yeah, but so what, what do you do that makes you the money? And I'm like, all the stuff we do for that. Like I, We wrote 3,000 posts. Our website is big, but we wrote 3,000 posts. So I always say, if you want to do like make the money that we make or do what we do, you can do it. You just have to put in all that time and create that content. Because yeah, I always it's not you write one great post and you're you're a blogger. I think you you build this baby. It's like a business that comes grows out of the ground, you know. But ultimately, it's a faith-based model, and that you have faith out there that someone's going to pay for your toil for your effort, for your Or you do it before anyone makes money and you do it for fun. <laughs> and it turns into something amazing. Because I think now I think you that can't go into it like that. You know, like now people want to go into it immediately with AdSense and make, you know, like sell an ebook and have a lot of followers on Instagram or on Pinterest. And I'm kind of like, I don't know how to help you. If I had a secret way to do that, I would. But my secret way is write 3,000 posts. My secret way to write two it's books. It's not the shortcut, right? For sure. Like our secret way to write two books. We wrote over 700 pages between our two books. They're 360 pages each. We wrote them. 
we wrote them. We didn't have a writer or an outline person. We wrote them. I mean, it's. I think we define ourselves as writers. Have you thought about barnstorming the country like Sonny and Cher? And <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe through ticket sales because that really that is the ultimate reckoning. I do want to get at um, you know how this overshot over the last three or four years. Um, it can be a beautiful thing. It certainly you know really surprised you beyond your wildest expectations in your readings, all the all the interviews I've seen with you that. But it also took over your life. And you realize that it's one thing to share, but it's one thing to live, it's another thing to live in a fishbowl. For everybody to know about what's going on with your family, with your life, constant observations and meditations and updating Instagram and Twitter, and now people are asking you about Snapchat and Grindr and... <laughs> I don't know what the like kids are using these I like in there. <laughs> what is a Grindr? Is it, is it a dating app? Is it more than that? Is it like a stripper app? No? I'm sorry, Tinder. Oh, Tinder? <laughs> Tinder. <laughs> All you millennials. Anyway, go ahead. I think that that is one of the things in retrospect we realized that was one of the core challenges of the business we had built um, almost by accident was that there was this intense overlap between what was business and personal. And um, that's the personality and having such a close connection with um, our audience is what sort of brought the, the business up. But at the same time, it was difficult because there was less, there wasn't really like a behind the scenes to turn to as much anymore. And it got very blurry between. You couldn't just shut it off. For like three is, no. is our life content or is part of our life content? You know what I mean? It was a very blurry boundary. Like when we go on vacation, we would completely subconsciously be like, let's go to that thrift store because maybe we can buy something. If we buy something on vacation, we can blog about it and then vacation isn't for wasted because we have a blog post out of it. And it started to feel very much like when you're trying to perform or you know entertain everyone all the time, you realize it feels like you don't have your real life anymore. It feels like you're just always looking outwardly sort of for the validation of you're smart or you're creative or you're cool. And it started to feel blurry with like, is family time really family time, or are we doing this so we can take a picture and put it on the internet? So I think it was really helpful for us to realize, like, there's two pies and there's life and work. Our sweet spot is not completely overlapping at all. And so we completely separated them and did all this work sort of behind. We stepped away from the blog, took a break, saw how it felt, and then realized it's weird how easy it is after seven years of every single weekday we would check in with people to going to zero. And we'd share like Instagram updates too and Facebook updates. It was like a lot of pictures every day to like no pictures. And it was, we thought we'd be like missing the validation or missing the like, I don't know, the like oversharing. Cause we felt like you have to be an oversharer to do this. You just have to, you don't, you're not shy and you blog about your whole life. But it felt the like privacy or the like sort of things that were just ours felt very precious and it felt like nice to have that suddenly. And so I think we, we're like, you know what? We made this big risk in New York City moving away and having no jobs. And then we took another risk when I took a pay cut to start the website, to try to make the website into a job. So I think we're good at taking sort of a calculated risk for what we really want. And it felt like the irony wasn't lost that we were working really crazy 
hours on the website when a few years prior we were working crazy hours in New York City and tried to escape that. So it was like this, oops, we did it again. <laughs> so it was nice. It's a millennial it's, reference. I think yeah. it speaks did to this. Did you see this? This is also another, <laughs> that's great. I think I did it again. You could take the mic and we'll add five minutes. <laughs> you want to go burp me. Uh, I, you know, there's that, so at, at this point you have two children. When uh -huh. you come to that yes. epiphany that, gosh, do we want to do this? Was there an argument like in the notebook? <laughs> you know, they throw vases at each other and claw each other's eyes out and then kiss and decide to live with each other until they die. There was, it was not dramatic at all. It oh. was like, wasn't it funny how when we had Clara, we told the world we had Clara four days later? And isn't it funny how four years later when we had our son, before I even had my son, every minute I was five minutes late with a post, people were like, you had the baby, did you have the baby? And there were people asking, when's your C-section date? I know you're having a C-section. And it felt so different. I think that was social media, I think it was blogs evolving, I think it was lots of people coming into the scene and really sharing everything. And it was suddenly like, well, we just kept it DIY, like we really shared specifically, but then it felt like, oh, it's really changed a lot. So you were legitimately gonna shut it down for good? We, we didn't know. It felt sort of like maybe when the kids go off to school, we would do it again or something in a, like a limited capacity. We knew it could never be the overlapping pies again. Like yeah. the blog could never be our full-time job. It could never be our full focus because it felt unhealthy. Felt like we needed to separate. We needed to put other things on our plate. They were like, you say it nicely, where there were like other fun things we were saying yeah. no to. Well, the around 2013, 14. This is before our son was born in 2014. Um, the website was really taking off and it was really spinning off into other opportunities. Our first book was out, we were writing our second book, we were designing products that were gonna be launching in Target. Um, we were designing a show house for the Homerama here in Richmond. So it was so exciting for us because we had all these cool things we never expected we'd be able to do, but it was also adding a lot of um, time and stress to the business. You know, As exciting as they were, it was, it was more work. And so there was this moment uh, before our son was born where it was like a stark contrast that when our daughter was born was this sort of uh, euphoric time that we had uh, been able to both work from home. We had a uh, you know, small baby who was luckily sleeping very well. So we, like, we felt like we had all the time in the world when our daughter was born in 2010. But in 2014, it felt like we were way over our heads. We were- Writing um, our second book, we, doing that show house. We just had too much going on. And yeah. it was sort of like, wow, this, this second, kid is going to get such a different experience or a different version of his parents than his sister got. Like the bad version. It felt like when we were being really good bloggers, we were really dropping the ball in parenting and that's like not the way work is supposed to be. Like you're supposed, you're supposed to be allowed to be good at your job and good parents and I don't think they need to be mutually exclusive and when it felt like that, we knew it was like we needed to do something dramatic and we had done all these little tiny things like we'd drop one post a week and so instead of being eight, there'd be seven or something ridiculous. And we were like, that's not really moving the needle. You can't say like, I'll do one hour less of this thing I spend 60 hours doing and suddenly 59 hours. So my life comes but into balance. This speaks, to a flaw. this speaks to a flaw of the model. You should be able to delegate and yeah. scale. It is, so that's And the at thing. some point, did you, did you think about having understudies? I think you I mean, you think can't. about all the, the YH, YHL groupies who would have loved to have but this is my lived theory. in your attic. I think people invested in our like life and our adventures and I think it would be sort of a bad taste in everyone's mouth if we 
hired it out to someone else who was going to speak th- for us or speak about their life. Because people would say, like, I don't want guest posts. I, I th- want you. I think it is a personality flaw of us that we're DIYers. We like to do it ourselves. So I think we did have trouble letting go of it. And there's probably a system that would have worked for someone, but for us, we couldn't figure it out. And I also, we didn't necessarily want to separate ourselves from the core. I think it them. works for certain websites. I just don't think it works. If your model is you're going to, like, talk like it's a diary about your life, if you're reading someone's diary and suddenly someone else comes in and starts talking, you're like, um, bait and switch. Do you know what I mean? It's like all these people are invested in our family and our our houses and our choices and they knew us that like there would be I'd wear something and they'd be like there's the black blazer you know like they it was like it's like when you have these inside jokes with your friends and then you go to meet up with someone at the cafe and they sent their sister-in-law that you never met like it felt like that's what would happen and I know there are amazing it's not that we think we're the best writers in the world no one else could be as good I just think they if there's an amazing writer no one would come to John and Sherry's website to hear from them they just they should start their own website and everyone would go over there. And we love lots of blogs. It just felt like a weird way to sort of go out or flounder around. You really then stepped away from the, the fork in the road, the, the potential at some moment to become an internet empire. I mean, you could have, out, you could have seated a battalion of you know, <laughs> young, young house groupies. Right out there, you could have had a training camp in Richmond. You could have put them up at the, <laughs> at the I don't know if it's even a comfort inn on the boulevard or something right now. <laughs> right, it would and be you cheap. You could have built them a treehouse or right. Right. rough it out and get somebody to cover their reality show suffering. <laughs> anyway, this, this being the resourcefulness. In the few minutes we have left, concentrate on the advice that you'd give yourselves as doe-eyed 23-year-olds. Maybe regrets that you have in this business, things that you would have done differently, things that you'd wish you'd known about the entrepreneurial leap of faith, and broadly advice to people trying to swim into some sort of personality in this broad content statusphere. I think the the two things that stick out to me that I wish I had known is that, and I think this actually applies for whether you're doing this as a business or doing it personally, that um, what you put out there through social media, blogs, Facebook, whatever, is is um, creating content that affects your personal brand. I think we're at an age where we all have a personal brand, whether it's a business or not. And so I think um, it's helpful to think about that as the start of knowing that what you are doing is contributing to that and make sure that if you are hoping to turn it into something that is a business or more, if you want to become an Instagram model or whatever your goal is, know that from day one, everything you put out there across all social is is feeds towards that and just be mindful of if it's feeding towards the right things and if you're putting too much not enough um and i think we just we just shared everything for so long we didn't really stop to pause to think if it's things that we wanted to share what the implications of it might be down the road so i think we we since we were caught up in the evolution of this social media sphere um looking back i would have given myself that guide i think we also are wondering um regret is that we didn't keep the sense of adventure throughout our entire process completely it's that we're like the best creatively when we play around and do weird you know in the early days of the blog the reason we won that contest i don't know the reason because the judges just cited a few fun things we did as reasons they liked it but we had posts that had titles like our kitchen cabinets are like brangelina and then you clicked in it and said they're like smoking hot we just were weird, and that was they in a world. They were not SEO optimized, right? In a know. world where everyone was saying how to hang kitchen cabinets or why I picked Craftmade for my kitchen cabinets for SEO, we were saying like the most random, ridiculous things because we just—I was a copywriter who wanted to do something funny and not be like so. This was not serious; it was a hobby. And so I think 
it's hard when your hobby turns into your job to keep that sense of adventure because as much as you say, you're doing the same activities you used to do as a hobby, as a job, yes, but there's also the little voice that says if your hobby tanks, nothing is at stake or maybe you find another hobby, but if your profession tanks, how do we feed the children? So I think there's an inherent um, sort of riskiness that to making something your whole job that for some reason made us too nervous to play around and we got in this groove of what we thought our readers liked and what we thought we liked and we never stopped to think like, do we really like it? Is it really the most like sustainable? Is it the most fun? Would we do this for 20 years? And I think we, we sort of lost the sense of adventure and it was hard to, to grind away when you're not playing. It was more like working. Working, going back to those miserable 18 months you had as an assistant. <laughs> now you're unique in that you saved money. You weren't too much in debt, I imagine. Mm -hmm. What would you have done differently? I think a lot of people, this is what people are dying to know because it goes back to that disillusionment of 22, 23. Is this as good as it gets? Do I, is, is this really the best that there is out there for me? Either this or go back to law school or something like that. What, what advice would you have given to that person? And moreover, the advice you give to college students and you know, rising freshmen that want to talk to you now. I would say that it's never too late to change course. Um, I don't think what either of us did in college or expected we would do after college would look anything like this. And I think, again, I have to hand it to Sherry because she's the person who helped sort of push me off the course I thought I was on and say, you know, you can look towards something um, different if what you're doing isn't working. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen right now and the next month. You, you need to make sure you're still making a smart decision that's thought through, but don't be afraid to take a risk and try something different. It may not be your degree. It may not be what your resume sets you up to do, but um, again, be open to that adventure, I guess. Open-ended in the few minutes you have left to your fans out there. If you want to sing a song, if you want to talk, <laughs> if you want to share something, something new that's happening, make this worthwhile for the people who came out here to see you in the deuce tonight. Uh, well, that's no pressure. <laughs> You've been under the gun before. I mean, I'd like to... Um, let's see. Well, I, I wanted to add on that I think the funny thing is we, now that we have stepped back from blogging so regularly, that it has injected some of that adventure back in to our business because we suddenly have time where we can, if a fun opportunity like tonight pops up, we don't have to immediately think, well, we're too busy for that. Right. Um, you know that there's like some terrible quote, I'm going to slaughter it, it's like, if you close a door, a window opens. There's something about leaving space for what's next, yada, yada. That, I believe, is like scientifically true. I don't know if anyone studied it, but they should. Because the minute we took everything off of our tray for a second, little cafeteria tray clearing, and we left it open for a second, it meant every cool opportunity that we were asked if we could do, we didn't have to say like, oh, the timing's wrong, we'd love to do it, we're so sorry. I mean, we had auto responses that said no to everything to everything, I just click it and it would say we can't do that magazine thing, we can't do that book thing, we can't do that event, we can't do that TV show, I still use the TV show on. <laughs> but it basically was, it was like a lot of no when we wanted to, we weren't even thinking, it was like autopilot no. And now we're on this cool, we're in a cool place where we're we- We're in a place of maybe. Yeah, <laughs> we're coming at you live from a place of maybe. And if you need a toilet replaced, just let John me know. John can do it in a flash. You were listening to the Petersicks, John and Sherry Petersick, at Young House Love, internet celebrities, best-selling authors, really generous people to cross the, the dangerous Huguenot Bridge, and uh, <laughs> ask the mighty James to come out here and be with us at our first show in Jackson Ward tonight. Thank you so much for joining us.
Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Our executive producer is Emily Shane. Our sound guy, also Nick Reuter. Thank you so much, sir. Special thanks to Ron Stallings of the Hippodrome, Rick and Molly Hood, Susan Greenbaum, our traveling soundtrack. We do sump pumps, sub-zero toasters, half-ply artisanal TP, and non-toxic laminate flooring. I'm Robin Farzad, back at you next week. <laughs>